Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 43, Māori Music with James Holt, Part Tahi. That's one. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Neville, Adam and Trot. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we finished off our chat on Taonga Puro with the realm of Hineru Katori, goddess of flutes, specifically Nuru, Pukaya, and the Putorino. Well, we aren't quite done yet. This episode, and the next one, I talk to James Holt, who is someone that has much more knowledge of Māori music than I do. In fact, he studied the topic to earn a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Anthropology, specialising in ethnomusicology. Primarily, we talk about more modern Māori music, so that of the last hundred years or so, rather than Taonga Puro. We actually talked for about six hours or so, just having a good chat before and after we recorded this, so the interview, if you can even call it that, is a bit more conversational and casual. It should go without saying that because of this, there is the odd bit of swearing and the occasional F-bomb. It's not a lot, but it is in there, so you have been pre-warned. I'd also like to apologise for any audio muck-ups. This is the first time I'm using my portable setup, so I'm still learning that part. Anyway, thank you to James for coming on, and I hope you all enjoy and learn something new. I should also add that at some point during the interview, James talks about the Māori meteors, He has later told me that what he was actually talking about was the Māori volcanics, and he just couldn't quite remember the name. So, if you're wondering what that is and you're a bit confused, that's what he's talking about, the Māori volcanics, not meteors. Another correction I should make is one that was pointed out to me by Margaret after she listened to the episode. Thank you, Margaret. Is that when me and James are talking about the story of Hinemoa and Tutanekai, we mentioned that Makoya Island is in the middle of Lake Taupo. It is in fact not in the middle of Lake Taupo, it is in Lake Rotorua, a bit further north. As I said, starting it off is the weird bit. Yeah. Maybe maybe I should just leave this in. Yeah, do it. Maybe I should just leave That's pretty much what I've done in the past. Yeah. Is, is, and shall is, we just yeah. shall we just mention that we've tried for about two hours to get this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um Kia ora, James. Kia ora. Thank, you, thank you for, for joining me. We've Fair. uh we've actually um it's uh what is it? It's about quarter past four on a Saturday right now. And we got here at two o'clock? Yeah, yeah, we've been trying to start this episode for a good uh two ish hours. Um but we've just really just been having a good chinwag actually. Uh, uh yeah, Bob Simple came up. Bob Simple came up, so you know, we we had to spend a So good, that was a good, good hour. A and good while on that. Yeah. Um but yes, no, um we I've I've got someone else on, which is quite exciting. Um <laughs> yeah, the, pretty much the, the first actual interview yes. I've done. And the first Marty on the podcast, right? Uh yeah, pretty sure actually. Yes, I'm hitting yeah. so many firsts. So many today. firsts. <laughs> yeah, no, so you should feel honoured. I am. I feel deeply honoured. <laughs> deeply honoured. Yeah. No, so yeah, so we've got um, we've got someone else on the podcast because they actually know more than me about something. Uh, let's, um, pre- let's not preface that. <laughs> maybe cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but James has actually done stuff. Yes, um, you yes, have I done have. stuff instead of stuff. Um, me, but like me, where I've just bought books off Trade Me. 
that's the stuff I did, but yeah. mine was for a grade at the end of Yes, that. yeah. So, uh, do, you, do you want to tell us, or tell the viewers, the viewers? I don't know viewers. why I keep saying viewers. viewers. the listeners. They're not viewing anything. The, the beautiful listeners the beautiful of this podcast. List, the beautiful listeners of, of, we should also probably preface, oh, you are one of them. That, yes, I am one of them. That yes. is how yeah. this is how we yeah. connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, um, indeed, indeed. Because he he had said that he was going to be doing um, episodes on music, and I was like, oh, like if you need any help, I just said if you need any help, I can give you some information. And he hits me back with, oh, oh we can interview you, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> yeah. So um, we actually we connected towards the end of last year in 2019. Yes, we did. To which I told you, um, I'm very far behind and not going to hit that for a while. And I was, and I, yeah, and I, and I kind of sat back and was like, oh yeah, no, that's fine. Just like message me whenever. Kind of forgot about it, and then you, me- yeah, I think you. Mess- I've had that message sitting in my inbox for a while yeah. to remind me that I needed. And message then I think you. I'm not sure if I messaged you or you messaged me. I think I messaged you because I made this plan that I was like, yeah, we're gonna. The music now oh yes and that's when i was like okay well i better i better message him yeah um, so and that's when I, I hit you up and was like hey we should do the thing and we we're like yeah cool um and and then COVID hit yeah uh <laughs> we were gonna kind of do it and we we hadn't quite set the date but no. we were like yeah okay cool you know we're, we're pretty much there and then um yeah everything kind of went to shit but in but in <laughs> but in all of this time at the beginning of at the end of last year i was living in auckland and now i have moved down to wellington so this means i can do an in-person interview yes this was part of the reason kind of why we delayed it yeah because it was like yeah we could do it over over skype or whatever but if we could do it in person that would be quite cool and i was planning just to come down for like a, a weekend but apparently now i'm i'm here for life now <laughs> yes <laughs> so, I've, I've kept him here I've yeah him here. um yeah no <laughs> this so, was uh, actually my new job guys hi <laughs> i've got a new co-presenter <laughs> god <laughs> um so yeah so james has done some some stuff um so do you want to tell us i guess a bit about yourself what that stuff is yes and i guess generally why i bothered to invite you at all (laughs) right yes okay so here i am justifying my presence um so i did my research in ethnomusicology which is the subsection of anthropology which is the study of cultural music and my dissertation was on the application well the progression of pre-Māori music, uh, pre-Māori music, pre-colonial Māori music, and then it's kind of transmutation into contemporary Māori musical expression today. And so I did a lot on historical Māori music, so Tonga Puhoro is one, Haka is another, um, which is probably the oldest form of Māori music that's still existing today, um, and then kind of transitioned that all through to um, kind of waiata and kapahaka, well into um, kind of reggae which is a big a big subsection of Māori music and into you know the stand walkers and the tikitanes and the uh what's the and um alien weaponry which is the um heavy metal band. yes i had someone hit me up on twitter about yes. uh alien weaponry the other day yeah. and they they said they were um very interested and were listening to that i think they said their kid actually introduced them really uh, to the yeah which was uh, quite interesting yeah i mean so, yeah i mean and on a on a slight tangent on alien weaponry i mean i think that was that was one that kind of surprised me um because it was it's they're using quite an ancient form of maori musical expression which is haka and adding it to heavy metal which is kind of like electric electronic it's, instruments it's, it's a i guess a fusion of kind of a little bit old a little bit new well type and stuff. but it, it it works so seamlessly mm. in ways that i 
probably if you had told me like oh what would you think about heavy metal Marty music I'd say I think that sounds like a fucking horrible idea <laughs> um, and then I heard like Alien Weaponry with Kai Tungaton I was like this is seamless yeah, like yeah, this yeah. I was like this is a haka it's a haka mm. with a bit of electronic music in the background but it's a haka it's got mm. everything that a haka requires it's got a challenge it's got you know the, the beat the shouting the kind of the, the, the guttural soul and wider that you require in one so yeah yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of floored by Alien Weaponry, and I'm kind of obsessed with them now. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so that was what I did, and so I w- thought I would help in talking about yes. um, musical expression here in New Zealand, because of course, like, I didn't just cover Maori music; I also covered um, just general New Zealand uh, music and contemporary music here in New Zealand, and how those things kind of interacted um, with both. Um, pre-colonial Māori and also um, how that's kind of worked into the like 1980s and 60s and 50s and all those places that we don't actually talk about in New Zealand because we think nothing happened in the 1950s and 60s but a hell of a lot happened. A lot happened actually. We will talk about that in 10 years time when I I get up to it. And by by 2060. 2060. (laughs) 100 year anniversary of the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's yeah, there's a lot. A lot is good though. A yes. lot is good. More, it, more is better than less. I don't like it, it's um like you see other other people they research things like um you know ancient Greece or or that, that kind of stuff. They got like three sources and that's it. Yeah, you know, I'm like, on the one hand that's good. You've only got three things that you have to read. On the other hand, it's really nice to have all these different yeah, and, I sort of, and and all of the history has been real piecemeal. I found mm. that when I was doing my research in music, is that you you were kind of you were kind of using sources from like the 1800s with sources that you that someone yeah. wrote yesterday and you had to kind of almost piece together this like traction of history and almost read between the lines and i think yeah. that's a lot of new zealand history if i'm being honest yeah absolutely um so what i, I guess what is your experience personally with maori styles of music mm. um in terms of did, did you grow up with it yes. or I guess what's your story behind why you were interested in it enough to to go and actually study it yeah well actually this was really interesting because I found so when I was it was one of those things where uh, you know when you're like with friends and you kind of talk about like music that your parents listen to Mm. and a lot of my friends are talking about music that I hadn't really come across and a lot of the music I had been listening to had weirdly enough been uh, if, if it wasn't like overtly Māori so like Prince Tuiteka for example was a big influence in my in my young days um Dennis Marsh I'm not sure if you know who he is no sorry <laughs> he had a song he had a song called um, Māori Hāngi I anybody listening I look it up it's a it's a cultural reset um but I, I've kind of realized that actually I was listening to music that was a little bit different from my peers. And so I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit and be like, okay, so what are the, what are Māori listening to that Pākehā aren't listening to? And you had the obvious ones. So there's, you know, music that are sung by Māori in Māori. Uh, you know, you would imagine that Māori are listening to that music. But then I also had, you know, I'm um, Connie Francis huge influence in my life no one none of my friends their parents listen to connie francis and yet here i was in this rural Māori town always listening to like stupid cupid and um everybody somebody's full um you i was and so it was that was kind of my first initial reason for doing it um and on top of that also there was songs that would sing on the marae that would do you know after someone does a fly corded or that you couldn't hear anywhere else um the kind of songs that i learnt. um just basically being on the marae or, or being with, around my family and 
kind of you know wondering like you know how was it that we managed to to keep those songs alive and where and where did those songs come from um and and why do we sing them mm. more importantly like why why did these songs remain and the other songs that we sang long long ago didn't um and was that down solely to the pressures of colonialism or was there something a bit more deeper there so that was yeah there's, there's a lot of my my reasoning and so my a lot of my experience with Māori music was either on the marae, um, singing in support of anybody in the Fai Kōrero, doing the Fai Kōrero, I mean, um, or just kind of the ones that you'd, I'd always call it the Māori garage party. Mm-hmm. So where you'd all kind of like, you'd, you'd all kind of clamber into a garage or some sort of like a shed of some description away from the main house. Everybody would have a box of beer and suddenly your uncle will pull out a guitar from nowhere, out yeah. of thin air. And suddenly you're singing um, old war songs or old, or like, or just any kind of song. Connie Francis, Stupid Cupid, still coming up. It's something that's very apparent in my life. Um <laughs> You know, you'd start singing these songs and everybody knew them. And when you're a young kid, you start to learn them just simply by being around it. And suddenly you're singing them and then you and you realise that it's going to continue in this very organic way. So I essentially it was just I wanted to kind of dig, dig that a little bit deeper from my personal experience and kind of dig in and say, OK, well, what are other Māori experiencing? And uh, is is this a thing that all Māori are doing? But probably more importantly, is this something that other p- cultures are doing? Mm. So, um, in, when I was doing my research, I was doing a lot on like Afro-Cubanism and kind of the New Orleans kind of scene mm-hmm. of, of music and jazz. And so it kind of saying that like, well, this is something that Māori are doing, but actually it's something that humans themselves do when like different musical styles kind of clash. You kind of try to bring in your cultural perspective into the sounds and kind of beats that you're into. And that was really it. Um, that was, that, I say, that, uh, that, that was, was it. That was it. <laughs> that was <laughs> it. That was it. My, my 10 minute tirade, that was all it was. <laughs> just, just like that. Just like that. <laughs> you know, just casual things. <laughs> casual thoughts and opinions. Absolutely. So what about um, what about Tangaporo specifically? What kind of uh, experience had you had with that, either before you went to uni or during yeah. uni or after? What kind of experience in general do you have with, with them? So in terms of cultural practice, almost none. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think that's down to the history of Tangaporo. It was very much stamped out during the colonial period. Um, and I think also what I found interesting when I was studying it was that it was because I think of this transition from kind of uh, traditional Māori beliefs into Christian beliefs, the same kinds of fear and unknown with Taonga Puro started coming up within Māori communities. Um, the fact that they had kind of for, like not necessarily forgotten, but the fact that they had like not really interacted with them in the same way that they had reacted interacted with Christianity, those instruments kind of became almost tapu to the point that you never played them, uh, or because you didn't understand them, you didn't really engage with them. But what is interesting is that if I think about when I was growing up, and actually in in a lot of Maori media, for example, or in a lot of shows that have Māori in it, you'll always hear, and I forget the name of it, which is terrible, um, but it's that, it's, it's, it's a, essentially a piece of wood that's been carved on a, on a string and a thread, and it's swung around the head, and it makes this whirling noise. 
Yeah, yeah, and you'll always hear it. And like, if if someone if there's like a Maori on screen and he's talking about like some curse or tapu that's mm-hmm. happening, you'll hear this little like woo yep. in the background. Um, so for just to interrupt you there briefly for listeners who are listening to this now, we've actually well we're recording this a bit in advance of yeah. when this episode is going to come out. Obviously, that's how podcasts work. Um, but we're actually listening to this the week a few weeks after I had yeah. released the episode talking about that. Okay. Um, okay. So that quite, uh, if you remember back to that episode, I don't remember what the general name for it was. I'd have to look it up. But this was one that um, I made specific mention of the South Island name for it, which is I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this, but it was Ara Ara something like that. It's 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 apostrophe G A A R A. Oh yeah, Arga. Y- yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I, if you, if uh, listeners want to go to the website, um, to uh, that episode, um, and under the Te Reo Māori in Hans section, I actually talk a little about my theory about why that is. Yeah. Um, about why the that apostrophe is there. Mm. I think it's dropping the N, but I'm not sure. Probably is. It's probably more like a Nga, but they've dropped yes. the N slightly to do like a Ga. Yeah. yeah, potentially because that is what Kaitahu yeah, do, I, right? Yeah, I, I, and, so, I, and as someone from the far north, I'm not going to comment on the Mita of Kaitahu. <laughs> yeah, this, this is my, my theory uh, <laughs> that, I, that I have, but that's, um, yes, we have spoken about yes. that. Yeah. Um, okay. Already. So yes. yeah. So those instruments you hear, um, and that was really down to a revival in the 1980s. And so um, I think for like any kind of Maori of my age, you're only really hearing it in like um, contexts of like you know Maori being, and a lot of the time in, in media, Maori are portrayed as these like spiritual guides for the the mis- the, the wayward European, and so they kind of talk about you know like the. They, they give you, like, a, a corridor on the curse or the tapu that is obviously going to be ignored by the Europeans and then the Europeans are all going to die or something or something terrible is going to happen, a volcano will explode and, um, and all of that. So you'd only really hear it then. But I think what was interesting is that when you start kind of digging deep into Tonga Puro, you come to understand that a lot of it was... A lot of the reason for using it, and this is probably where the, the, the tapu aspects came from when Māori converted was that a lot of the time you would do it because you were kind of lifting the veil so to speak between um the human world and this kind of spiritual world so the voice and the breath are very the breath is very sacred and so a a voice is very grounded someone talking and shouting and speaking is very human and it it, it does something to your wider but it's a very human kind of grounded aspect but blowing into an instrument Sorry, I've just yeah. interrupted James there because I don't know if we've addressed this word yet. Oh, okay. We might have, but wairua ah. is not a word I think we may have brought right. up. So do you want to explain that Yes, one? so wairua is, on a basic principle, is your spirit. But, um, so there's... How deep do I go into it? Um, not too deep. No, not too deep. <laughs> not too deep. But there are essentially two parts to a human in, in Māori cosmology. There's your wairua, which is your spirit, or this kind of corporeal form and your tinana, which is just your body. And in between that is a connection called your modi, and modi is called your life force. And when this person dies, essentially the modi has severed, and your wairua goes off somewhere else, and the tinana remains in, in the earth. Um, and so when, I, when I'm talking about um, the voice hitting the wairua and, and attaching to the wairua, I'm saying that it does hit your spiritual realm, but it's still very much a human 
kind of a very like non tapu aspect um of your of yourself um however blowing into so a lot of the instruments for maori and tongapilda were wood instruments and that was breath and breath is very much a spiritual corporeal um aspect of of maori cosmology at least from my area of the country um so the breath is very sacred um hongi for example I'm, we've you've covered hongi i'm you? pretty sure i have yeah. yeah hongi for example is it's the touching of noses but the actual purpose of doing that is that you're meant to share breath with one another mm. and once you share breath you've be, you you you've you've changed from being a guest or manuhiri and ahika or home people and now you're you're one because you've shared breath and now you're you're sharing the same space um, and a lot of Māori instruments were woodwind instruments that were, uh, it required you to blow into them and a noise would come out. And so a lot of that noise was associated with kind of a different, a different realm. Um, a lot of Māori viewed those sounds as being the voices of the, uh, of, if not the gods of those that have passed, of communing with people on, on the other side of the veil. Um, and so, yeah. And, and so part of it thinks, part of me thinks that's why a lot of Māori, when they converted, didn't really touch them anymore. But also in saying that, uh, even though they had a spiritual purpose, they were used for entertainment. And I, and I think we need to kind of move forward that they were only ever used for ceremony. They were used for entertainment. There's a lot of stories of people playing the, the, the nose flute. Um, there's a really, my, one of my favourite stories is the story of Henemore and Titanikai. Have we covered? Have you covered that story? No, I don't okay. think so. Go for it. So heading more into Tanaka, I won't go into too much detail because this will be a good story for him to actually do in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but heading more into Tanakai, uh, basically the Māori Romeo and Juliet. Um, Tutanikai was this uh, the son, the youngest son of a chief, and Henemore was the daughter of a rival chief. You know, Verona. <laughs> but instead of Verona, it's uh, Rotorua. And the story goes that Henemore had kind of fallen in love with Tutanikai, and Tutanikai had fallen in love with her, but they couldn't be together because her father had forbidden it because he was of the rival... Um, of, a, of, a, of a rival group. Um, but he went to Makoya Island, which is in the middle of... Uh, I believe it's Lake Taupo. I might be wrong, but he went to this island, Makoyo Island, in the middle of this lake, and he was playing his nose flute. He was practicing his nose flute, and Henemore heard him, and apparently he played so beautifully that she couldn't contain herself, and she swam across the uh, the, the lake to the island, um, and they met together, and they fell in love, and they married, and the rest is history. But um, what that story kind of pinpoints is that it was it was something that was used for entertainment, but also, like, more importantly, it was kind of used as a sense of attraction. A man that could play... Like a courtship thing. Yeah, like yeah. a man that could play an instrument was a man that you wanted to marry. Um, and again, another kind of layer that I like about that is that it's a man being pretty and doing something pretty that a woman will desire. And that's, mm. and that's something that kind of turns kind of the European ideas on courtship slightly on its head. Mm. Um, and also the, the fact that she sat across a, a, a lake to get to him is always, I've always... It's, if it's Topor, that's a big lake. It's a, it's a big it's, lake. It's a big lake. And it's also a very cold lake. It is also <laughs> a very cold lake, so, yes. So she had to have been very much into the man. Very and motivated. Must, and he must have been very good at playing that nose flute for her to get yeah. across there. So yeah, so there is, so there's kind of this grounded aspect, but there's also the, the fact that it was breath meant that there was a, a, an extra cultural layer on, on instruments that you didn't really kind of, 
that that you had to kind of acknowledge and, and keep protected and keep yourself safe from yeah so again we have covered that a little bit mm. i should say again, james is a listener of the podcast but he's not listened to the last uh few yeah uh, I've been very... so maybe if he did he would know we've covered this maybe <laughs> but also i'm not sure if you've realized but the world's a bit of a crazy place right now it is no so we and uh, so I, I, the only reason I say that is because I, I classified it slightly differently yeah. in my episode where I made the distinction between, I, I guess I kind of classified it the same, but I made the distinction between the breath or, or the, the winds of a person versus the winds of, say, Tafiti uh, Ah, yes, yes. Kind of, so the, the bull roar is classified as being under um tafiri mate's yeah. realm yeah uh whereas things like like the flutes are, are classed under something different yeah even though in the western sense they're both wind instruments they both use the ear mm. to make a noise yeah so a lot of so a lot of tonga puro that are considered sacred are in the realm of tane mahusa mm-hmm. um yep. and and uh, again tane mahuta's uh he's a, he's an interesting one he is obviously kind of the the apex kind of Atua in the sense that he was the one that separated his parents and He's the big cre- boy. <laughs> big boy separated his parents and um created Te Almarama, the, the 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 kind of world of the living. Um but he is also interesting in the fa- in the sense that he is also the progeniture of women mm-hmm. in particular and his essence, his male essence and the essence of women is what created humanity. Um, and so he's kind of, he's this kind of almost catch-all god. He's the god of the forests and birds, but he's also the god, the, the god of, of man. Um, Tumatoinga is also the god of man. Um, we had a slightly lot Slightly confusing. Slightly confusing, <laughs> but it all makes sense. They're different aspects of the same kind of... Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and so his, he, a lot of the things to do with Tane Mahuta are considered a lot more sacred than, say, Tafiri Matia, for example. Um, Tafiri Matia is viewed in a very different, in, in a very different light, particularly because he was, um, well, he's still having, he's still fighting with his brothers now. Yes, he was very <laughs> famously vocally opposed to yeah. the And separation. if you've ever lived in Wellington or know about Wellington, you'll know <laughs> Tafiri Matia's um, presence is very well known down Yes, there. he's uh, very, very often felt, <laughs> even today. Even today. Just looking out the window now. It's um uh yeah it's a bit grim. <laughs> I've got a I've got a clear view of your mirror and it's not great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to go home at some point. <laughs> um, so I guess go, moving moving from the kind of more uh, I guess the, the the past stuff yes or the very the very the very old stuff to the more <laughs> modernish stuff. Ooh. Um, so I guess what aspects of Māori music. Um, kind of what aspects are there that kind of set it apart from from other genres or in other words what does a a Māori perspective or te ao Māori kind of add to other genres Mm -hmm. like I guess what yeah well that I mean that was basically my dissertation it was trying to (laughs) it was trying to ascertain what is it like what like what what is it about Māori music that makes it different and um, I think looking through the lens of reggae is a very good is a very good way to um to look at it because um reggae obviously has its origins in um Ethiopia and in kind of the 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 jar kind of rastafarian um sect of christianity and it's obviously for that reason has been very very popular in africa and very very popular in um the Caribbean as well. We can't, obviously, let's not ignore some of the great uh, reggae artists like Bob Marley who hail from Jamaica. I was going to say, he's like 
the reggae artist. He, he right? is the like reggae if, artist. If anyone's yeah. going to name a reggae artist, it's yeah. going to be Bob Marley. Um, but one of the things that's very common amongst reggae and where reggae is popular is that reggae is popular amongst either diasporic or homegrown African communities. So Africa, of course, reggae is big. In Car- the Caribbean, which has large populations of Afro, um, like Afro-Caribbeans, it's very, very big. The difference is that reggae in New Zealand is huge, and we don't have the same kind of African background for our reggae music. It comes from a Maori Polynesian background. Um, so that was interesting. And then I looked at, like, okay, so what are some of the reasons why? And a lot of the reasons why is because uh, reggae talks about kind of, um, it, it talks about a history of greatness and then losing that greatness and struggling through that kind of the, the 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 new reality that you're that you're dealt with so bob marley's music a lot of the time was talking about being taken away from your home country and being being a slave and then overcoming that that slavery and and, and rediscovering your kind of your power and your um and and kind of your your importance in the world and for marty that obviously did tra- translate quite well because in um here in new zealand Māori kind of lost the power to kind of dictate their own destiny and they kind of struggled through it. And reggae really got popular in the 1980s and 1970s, which is arguably the moments where Māori were really kind of trying to work through um, the the issues that they had been facing for hundreds of years. And, they, and for, for context on that, the 1970s is when the Waitangi Tribunal was yes. set up. So yeah. that is... That kind of makes sense in the in the sense that that's roughly when uh, the New Zealand government acknowledged yeah there was some stuff and that it, we probably shouldn't have been and, doing. And again, I don't want to get too much into this because because <laughs> it, it will be covered, but it does come at the tail end of the 1950s of what's known as the Maori Renaissance. So um, again, you'll all hear about this and it'll be fabulous when we get there. <laughs> yeah, but the so but the the kind of main characteristics of of, of reggae music and and Maori dim was you know you kind of. It, it 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 hit in this in the same kind of way that it, it talked about you know um, ancestry and it was very grounded in land and it was very grounded in like where you came from and 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 trying to rediscover yourself and it kind of really it 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 lined up quite well and the the, the characteristics of of Maori reggae is that it it kind of took. It, it took in kind of aspects that weren't necessarily African. So there's the steel drum, for example, that comes from the Caribbean. But you started kind of adding in like the steel string guitar, um, which is very which is very associated with Hawaii. Um, it started adding in, you know, like um, like Air Papa by Herbs. If, I'm not sure if you've ever heard it. Again, look that up. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's a reggae song. Um, in the way in it's composed, but it's also using a very old, old Māori song. E Papa was uh, a song from the Whanganui region. And um, I, I, again, this, the history of it is also very sketchy and vague, but one of the stories is, is that it was actually a song that was um, produced in the 19 uh, kind of 30s and 40s and the Māori tourist industry was starting to really take off. Um, and one of some of these shows that you can still actually see if you go to Rotorua are these um, Tirako shows which is the stick these stick games mm-hmm. and they composed their papa because apparently along the Whanganui River uh, Marae would have contests to see who could do this song and who could do the most elaborate Tirako tricks and um, from those competitions you'd kind of pick out the best ones to go and do these like tourist um, 
ventures. And so, yeah, it's taking like a song that has a, a, a like a very old song that has a history and, and kind of translating it into reggae. And the whole song, Air Papa, is is the song about, um, it's actually a sad song, but you, you do it in a way that's, it's, it's it's done in a way that makes it sound jovial but actually the the song itself is actually um you know longing for a loved one and and crying about the fact that you can't see them but they do it in a very jovial way and i think that's kind of aspects of of maori music making is 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 like that it's you know you kind of you almost cover up the the hurt with humor um i mean that's again that's not necessarily just a Māori thing, but a lot of Māori music and humour and media is about, like, talking about very difficult subjects with a veil of, of humour and mm. cheekiness, um, if only to make it more palatable to the Pākehā society, but also it's, it's easier to deal with, because, again, if you can't laugh, you cry, mm. <laughs> which is kind of a, a major principle. So reggae's one. The other one was... I feel like I need to talk about Whaley and Reef when we're here. I really <laughs> it's do. It's great. Let's, I, I let's really do. So... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Alien Weaponry, kind of like my faves. <laughs> um, that one is 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 perfect. So heavy metal is. I mean, there's a lot of different heavy metals. I I don't want to say like, particularly if you're a metalhead, don't worry. I I know it's a lot more complex than just heavy metal. <laughs> I get it. There's a lot of different genres, but heavy metal is a very like rebellious, very kind of anti-establishment form of rock and roll, and it's a very much about kind of like essentially screaming your guts out. So everything that you've got inside of you that you're frustrated with, whether it be society or just the way in which you interact with that society, you scream it out. Um, and it, it works so well with Hucker. So, so well. <laughs> Again, as I said, I was floored um, by, the, by how well it worked with Hucker. Um, but the, the particular difference, I would say, in terms of if there, is, if there ever became like a, like a Maori heavy metal... Um, Again, we've only got one band, but... It's a start. <laughs> it's a start. It's a start. <laughs> um, but, you know, Kaitangata was interesting because, yes, it was about the frustrations of of um, society, but it was also like a... It was a, it was a reclamation of history. Um, it was about kind of saying, you know, you know, this is who we are as Māori. It was establishing the cultural basis upon um, who Māori were, but in a way that was modern and forward thinking but still harkened back to this past of haka and haka are commonly referred to as war dancers but they do have a lot more perspective to them um you can have a haka when you're sad you can have a haka when you're angry you can have a haka when you're happy the the point is is that you're trying to dig deep within yourself and take the purity of what you're saying outward um, so if you're really, really happy, you're screaming about how happy you are. If you're really, really angry, you're screaming about how angry you are. And it's about taking that kind of deep-seated um, purity of your expression and, and letting it out there for everybody else to know. Um, and so with with the, with the Alien Weaponry, it was about taking kind of the like cultural essence of Māori and screaming it out to someone in a platform that was, to a lot of people, familiar. Um, and wasn't necessarily, and I think also wasn't bogged down by the, 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 the problems of cultural authenticity. I think a lot of the time when you do haka, sometimes if the, if the subject matter falls out of range of what people think a haka should be, people start to kind of say, well, that wasn't really a haka. But because it was a heavy metal song, 
it isn't necessarily a haka, so you were able to kind of like push the boundaries of what was kind of being told um, in that in that music that you wouldn't be able to do under traditional haka sense. Um, and so, yeah, there's another one. I always go on in tangents. Great. <laughs> no, that was great. No, it's, um, yeah, no, Alien Weaponry has been, been an interesting one for me because it's, again, as you say, it's not, I guess it's not something that when, yeah, when you, someone says, hey, we, we took haka and we put it into a heavy metal song, on the face of it, that does not sound like it probably would work. Well, and also, I mean, uh, uh, from a culture perspective, you'd, uh, my first thing would probably say, that doesn't sound tika. That doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound correct at all. Mm. And then you hear it and you're like, there's no way this can't be correct. Mm. Um, if anything, like, it's it's so good. And if you haven't heard it, look up Kaitangata by Alien Weaponry. If you hear it and see it, you're like, oh, heavy metal was designed for Haka. Like, heavy metal was meant for Haka. Um, so, yeah, I think those are always interesting aspects because I think it, it, it's one of those things where nothing has been lost, but a lot of things have been gained. Mm. So there's nothing to... Ma- so the, the, the Haka aspects from it, have, nothing's been lost about the essence of a Haka. Nothing's been lost about the essence of a heavy metal song. They've just gelled together so well that they've just created something new and exciting and honestly i hope i hope alien weaponry continues to kind of make this kind of music because it's something that i think ethnomusicologists are going to be talking about for a long long time um in terms of how culture kind of mingles with um already existent modern forms of musical expression amazing (laughs) love it so uh so sort of as a prior reading to this you did send me your uh, dissertation unfinished draft because my real one i can't find yes. <laughs> um but something i found quite interesting in it was um you repeatedly referred to this thing that you call a quote-unquote maori spirit yes yeah so i guess i, I guess I, was, I wanted to ask it because you talked to that a bit as to kind of what that is i realized from actually reading it that is not a simple question no uh, <laughs> no but do you want to do you want to kind of boil it down into into yeah. something as so, to kind of what you're actually trying to mean there? in ten thousand words or less <laughs> um which is the size of my dissertation uh no so essentially i was trying to say okay well what is it about so what what parts of this music actually make it maori because you can't call Māori music a genre, because Māori are in multiple genres. You can't call Māori music uh, the language because there are Māori that are singing in English. So what is it essentially that's a, like that makes it um, Māori? And I used a report that was done by the Waitangi Tribunal. That's appearing again. Um, <laughs> it's, it's going to appear, it's a, going few to appear a few times. <laughs> there is a, a contemporary claim called Y262. And I won't go into detail about this claim because it's a very detailed and complex claim. However, the claim is essentially a cultural claim. It's a claim on, uh, it was called the flora and fauna claim. And then they kind of expanded it out and were like, okay, well actually what, what is this, um, what is this contemporary claim actually about? And essentially the, the conclusion was, is that, um, the claim is really a, 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 an in-depth cultural claim, um, on what, and part of that kind of reporting that was done was they had to kind of like deduce okay so what is maori culture and what is pakia culture and um in in that they they kind of separated into two peoples they called it kupes people and cooks people and they talked about that maori culture was polynesian culture that came to new zealand interacted with that 
with New Zealand's environment and became something distinct. And they used the same thing for Cook's people, saying that um, the people that came with Cook, or more accurately, those that came from Britain, came from a cultural template in the British Isles, came to New Zealand, interacted with the environment of New Zealand and became something distinct. That distinction, of course, they reiterated that um, for the British, it was a culture that is manifested via the interaction of the natural environment, but also of the Māori that were here. So there was a, there's a connection that Pākehā have to acknowledge that their culture is shaped just as much by Māori culture as Māori culture is shaped by Pākehā culture that was introduced. So, after that long-winded expression, I took what they dis- took, talked about, which was um, cultural taonga. So these were distinctions within Māori culture that um, if something... Like, if, if, if something kind of hit these parameters, it was considered Māori. Um, so one of the things was is that if something has used the, uses the Māori language, it's Māori. Because Māori language is intrinsically connected to the culture. So, I thought, perfect. Um, every song that's in Te Reo Māori is a Māori song. Cool. Can label that. Easy. Easy. But what about, say, Stan Walker's song, uh, New Takeover? Which is entirely in English, but the entire music video and the entire sentiment of that song is about um pride in being maori and pride in being indigenous and and was a a showcase of maori culture okay so is that a maori song even though it's sung in english well um a lot of them so he the music video he shot was a lot about the land um the dancers for example would interact with the land quite like quite a lot um one dance move was women dipping their hair into the water and throwing the um the water up into the air and it falling down like rain um and he also interacts a lot with um kind of cultural movement so a lot of the dancing that he's doing is related to haka a lot of the fashion that he wears in it is um uses kind of traditional materials like flax and in the y262 report you can say oh well so um anything that's kind of made with the kind of naturally occurring substances in New Zealand can be considered Māori culture. Flax. Um, easy. Easy. Done. <laughs> um, so, and, and so what I did was I took their kind of template for identifying Tonga and I thought, well, can I apply that to music? So what is it in music that makes something Māori? And I used a very good example with kapahaka. The kapahaka nowadays would be considered traditional Māori expression. Um, but if you were to do a kapahaka performance in front of, say, Tamati Wakanini, who was uh, one of the tūpuna that signed the treaty, um, he would think, what the hell is this <laughs> crap? Um, because a lot, of that, a lot of it, apart from the haka, a lot of what is in kapahaka is not traditional. Um, but, what makes, so, but what makes that expression Māori? Again, it's done in Te Reo Māori, so there we go. You can put Te Reo Māori on the list of what makes something a Māori spirit. Um, it uses traditional um, tools. So poi, for example, was something that was used in, in, uh, in Māori culture. That's in kapahaka. But the main one is that it all the music in kapahaka and all the music talks about issues to deal with Māori. They are Māori issues that are being talked about. So in kapahaka, you'll always have a whakaeke, which is essentially a song or something where you... It's something... It's meant to be a challenge to do something about a problem. And so 
a lot of the time, Fakeke, for example, in Timatatini, which is the big Kapahaga contest, they'll always call on the the crown to honor the treaty. That's that's a very uh, regular one. They might do one on a challenge of homelessness, uh, poverty, um, environmental degradation. But these are issues that uh, but but you know, so honoring the treaty, for example, these are things that are very Maori focused. Maori are very keen to have the government honor the treaty and they're challenging the government and challenging all of New Zealand to do the same in a way that is familiar to Māori and um yeah and and deals with their issues another aspect of that was kind of it was basically saying so where where else do we see that um herbs is a perfect example on nuclear testing um again honoring the treaty um, if you ever heard the song Dragons and Demons, uh, which is, again, look that up. Um, the song is about, you know, uh, dragons and demons are in your head, nothing to fear. And they were talking about um, the police identifying Pacifica and Māori during the dawn raids, which again is going to be another lovely chestnut. A- again, these are, these are issues that Māori were inherently facing that Pākehā were not. Pākehā mm. were not being um, singled out in the dawn raids. They were, not being sing- they were not being profiled by police. They were not being dragged off Bastion Point. Again, another piece of history. Um, so they were, and so the song itself was in English. It was in reggae, but it was an issue that Māori were facing and they wanted it to be known. Um, so that was what Māori spirit was. But um, in my later version of the dissertation... Yes, I didn't see the yes. final version. <laughs> yeah. In the later version, I realised that actually this is something that any culture can do. Um, because again, what you're really saying is... Um, what you're really kind of saying is that, okay, so it's a culture's issues being transplanted through music. And so... What I'm so what I re- what I'm really saying Maori spirit is is that Maori spirit is taking in those cultural perspectives and translating it through any way possible. Um, so and, and translating it in a way or, or through music that is um, ideally is relatable to Maori. So I gave reggae as an example, but it can really be through any way. I mean, Prince Tuiteka was kind of more of a lounge singer, kind of um, uh, like rock and roll almost. Actually, you could you could argue I wouldn't say that really but um he would talk about maori he, he would use maori humor um he would, he would take pakia songs in fact um I'm trying to remember the song and i i think it's the the green green grass of home or is it uh, one of these songs that's done by i think it's engelbert humperdinck just such a name <laughs> um but he you know one of the one of the lines is like in, in the english version like there was mary um golden hair and lips of cherry and in in his version, he goes, um, "There was Mary, um, hair of golden lips, so hairy." And it's kind of he's and he's and he's really trying to. He's just kind of talking about like kind of rural Maori life. You know, you've got you, you got your cousin Mary, most attractive, not not exactly a blushing, blossoming flower, but she's you know she's got kind of she's she's always there and she's she's kind of a cultural staple and it was kind of talking about these like rural maori realities within songs and kind of almost distorting european songs kind of taking the european song and having it almost exactly the same but changing a lyric here or there Mm. to make it more relatable and funny to maori and in a lot of his shows he would um he would say a phrase in maori and um and then you know all these maoris in the audience were laughing and a lot of parkers were like what 
And then he would go, I'm sorry, Park. He was like, can't translate that. And really, it's because it's very rude. Um, <laughs> one one was, and I can't remember the Māori phrase, but in, in English, he says, um, there's these two ladies at the front of the audience, and he says, oh, um, do you like the drummer? Because he had a new, younger-looking drummer. And he says, be careful of that drummer because he likes hairy vagina and he said that in te reo maori and all these maoris are roaring with laughter and he just has to go oh, i'm sorry pakehas i can't translate that <laughs> uh, and it, but, and and it's it's and i it's important in the sense that he wasn't he wasn't kind of trying to it was it's it, it hit in two ways he's saying look you don't understand maori so you didn't get the joke in the first instance but also i can't translate that to you because you'll probably find it very vulgar and it's almost trying to say like you know so, like th- this is th- this just has unfortunately this just has to be an inside joke between me and all the Maoris in this room and you could argue it's exclusionary but actually it's kind of saying like you don't you don't actually need to be part of this to mm. still enjoy my music because usually after these jokes he'd he'd you know he'd kind of make it up to them by being like anyway here's this song by Chuck Berry and and so it was this um yeah I so I'm I'm always interested in the way in which like not just not just the song itself, but the way in which the artist kind of interacts with his audience. And Prince Tuitik is a perfect example of how a Māori was interacting with like a multi kind of cultural audience, but was still kind of saying, it's a show for Māori, but you're more than welcome to come in and enjoy it. Um, and so really that was what Māori spirit was. It's kind of these like, and I think you can see that in like, um, Af- like African-American music is one of that as well. Like there are going to be um, instances and in jokes that, white people even if it's in the same language are going to completely miss mm. um but you know african-americans are going to be like i got I, I it get that. Yeah. yeah and the the you know the european-american audience is like what 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 like why are you guys laughing what was so funny it's not to say oh you you could never understand it's just saying look at <laughs> yeah you can, like you're gonna have a fun time at this concert but this was just a little bit of a you know yeah. a, a moment for us and, and now we can move on so yeah looking at that yeah, but I was trying to get really important that, like, you know, it's not to say that Europeans can't identify with that Maori spirit. It was just to say that, like, you you required to enter our world mm-hmm. for a small moment to understand what was being said, rather than us entering your world. And that was kind of the importance about talking about um, uh, contemporary Maori music is that it's not Maori kind of trying to fit in with jazz they're bringing jazz to fit in with their cultural expression. So I could have just said that really. (laughs) (laughs) The longer answer was much more interesting. I mean, yes, yes. (laughs) But yeah, he'll cut this down. It's fine. I probably won't won't, actually. Uh, I'll probably mostly keep it the same. (laughs) Oh God. Uh, Cause this is is very interesting. I don't know about everyone else, but I'm actually finding this, this is very, very interesting for me because um, as we kind of and that's it. a major compliment because I've been here with him for at least four hours. <laughs> yes, but it's it's, it's interesting to get a perspective um, that for me it's very my perspective is very academic um, coming from the outside reading the books. And mine's like a fusion academic plus also like what my aunties told me when I was saying I was writing the dissertation. Exactly. <laughs> so that's it, it. It's cool to get that kind yeah. of different perspective yeah. of someone who's um in, in the kind of different mindset and a different. It comes at it kind of in a slightly different way than I do. The opposite direction, I suppose. The, the opposite. Yeah. Di- yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to put it that way. Yeah. Um, I guess we've kind of already talked. We talked a little bit about Stan Walker and, and oh, yeah. those guys. Um, but yeah, I guess like kind of what's the uh, what's the difference between, say, Stan Walker and the Ma- uh, modern Māori quartet versus, I don't know, fucking Taylor Swift or whatever? Right. <laughs> Here right. I've written versus random other pop songs. Yeah, I think, 
apart from like so the way in which they're producing their music and the the way in which their music sounds is really not much difference i mean they are still pop songs the modern mighty quartet slightly different because their cultural reference is the sir howard morrison quartet mm. and that has a history in maori show bands um yeah which, we'll get that in, the, in a minute Maori, <laughs> yeah. um so that so that's a complete that's a that's a little bit of a different history but the the difference is is that um well, I suppose it's not so much a difference, actually. I mean, Taylor Swift approaches music in the same from her cultural context. Um, she was really a country singer, and then she kind of, you know, as she as she kind of became more in, engrossed in Hollywood, she, her kind of music started to change and develop. Very normal. Um, so she's just kind of singing from her cultural perspective, in the same way that Gaga does a lot of music that would be. I mean, she did an entire album with um, Tony Bennett, um, and that was a jazz album uh, coming from New York. A lot of her music is a cultural reference to kind of that New York uh, club scene. Um, So essentially, with Stan Walker and the Modern Maori Quartet, they're just approaching music from their cultural perspective. Um, Stan Walker is an urban Maori, uh, but he has strong roots to his um, traditional or here or his traditional areas um he knows his iwi he knows uh you know his tupuna he knows his, his history and, and where his tūranga waiwai is or his place to stand um but he is also he grew up he he lived in australia he won australian idol he did take take that um and <laughs> is he, that really a big <laughs> it's australia i mean you, you know i, I like I, the thing is is that a no like no Look, you know, we just love it when we beat Australia. And, we really do. And we, and we, and we, we beat Australia in their own show. <laughs> and it felt <laughs> we, really we good. We went on their turf. And we went on their turf and we, and we stole the trophy. And honestly, after taking Firelap, that's the least they could do. Um, so, but like, you know, so he, he has this kind of, a lot of the music that he makes is, he, he uses his kind of urban Māori and, and his, and his Māori tanga to, express his music and the the biggest way in which you can tell oh is this is this music resonating with maori is to ask maori and say are you listening to stan walker and if you talk to any maori person about stan walker even if they haven't listened to his music for two years they'll talk about how much they love stan walker they'll talk about how much how cool stan walker is because he's stan the man um (laughs) you know like and it's and it's really because a lot of young maori would probably see themselves in him um, when they hear him talk, they hear someone like him. Mm. They hear their accent. They hear his, you know, like his, you know, his boost. <laughs> um, you know, that he like it's kind. They they hear they hear themselves in him. And with the modern Māori quartet, I think again, it's the same cultural references, but and they speak like us and they and they talk like us. But uh, um, but what's important with them is that a lot of the music they're singing is old Māori music, and. God, I really wish I could go into like um world like the music for World War Two and World War One in New Zealand. We're gonna get to that. Yeah, minute. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'll wait for that question. But you know, they're they're using a lot of music from like um World War from the World War Two from the Māori Battalion, um, music that stuck around, and then they're using and they and they're performing in a way that's familiar to Māori because it goes back to those Māori show bands, which I also have been told we're going to um, enter. So we'll we'll wait for that to come. But yeah, I think it's just it's it's talking it's music from the Māori cultural perspective and again a lot of music anyway is done that way as I used with Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga Mm. um Cardi B for example I mean you know say what you want about Cardi B's music but her uh, you know I like it like that she's uh 
Caribbean woman that grew up in New York and she sampled a song by a Caribbean man who lived in New York. And a lot of it is, you know, kind of talking about how she wants like diamonds and, and pearls and she wants to live this fabulous lifestyle, which is just, you know, the cultural background for why a lot of people immigrated to the United States in the first place. Mm. Um, you know, the, the kind of the land of milk and honey or the, you know, the, 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 the streets of New York are paved with gold, mm. you know, this kind of, you know, people moved to America to make something of themselves. And so a lot of music from say like, um, Cardi B, um, even to the to the extent of like um, Selena, for example, it's all about you know making something of yourself in this big new country and, and being number one. So again, it's all just from your cultural perspective. Mm. Cool. Um, so before we move, before we talk about the the kind of the, the show bands kind of stuff, yes. Um, you did make a little bit of a thing that I'm, I'm going to chuck in here. I was going to talk about it later, but we'll chuck in here instead. Um, a bit of a tangent, but do you want to speak a little bit to the difference between uh, urban and non-urban Māori, because yeah. that the, the, that distinction is is not necessarily just whether you live on a farm or you live no. in an apartment. No, uh, at, at least for for Māori, it's not. No, for for, for Pākehā, that's basically it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but there is the, the, that is kind of a big thing. Yes, it will become a big thing as as kind of um, at least in, in our chronological story as the cities start to come up, yeah. New Zealand starts to urbanise. And, and that's a problem for, for Māori for, for many yeah. different reasons. So do you, yeah, just want to talk a little bit about... Kind of yeah, so so recognising that this will be an episode at some point, um, we'll just give a little brief... Just a bit of context. bit of context. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it's more than just saying, are you a Māori that lives on a on a farm and are you a Māori that lives in central Auckland, uh, central Wellington and Te Aro? Um the, the distinction is... So I, for example, grew up in Auckland. Uh, the largest urban centre in the country, um, and I would be considered a rural Māori. And I'd be considered a rural Māori because I often went back to my original uh, rohe, or land, which is up in um, Mangonui, in um, Murifenua, which is the far north, because we're very creative at naming places here in New Zealand. And um, so I so I went up there almost every holiday, every Easter, every Labor weekend, we always go up there for Christmas. I'll probably go up there again for Christmas. Um, so we always, so I always go up there. So I know my kind of my, I know where I'm meant to stand. So I know my maunga, I know my awa, I know my moana, I know my tupuna, I know my genealogy. Um, that is what we would call a rural Māori. An urban Māori is someone who, whose entire, who, who is Māori, but doesn't know or has lost or um, isn't aware of their kind of their cultural connection. So where they were actually from. Um, now this is so, and I need to preface that there are obviously iwi whose natural lands are in urban centres. So there are about 19 iwi in Auckland, for example. Um, obviously their little hair is in Auckland. So therefore that's their traditional land. So if they, again, if they live in West Haven, their natural, like, uh, which is in central Auckland, uh, their natural law here is West Haven. And they know that, and they know the awa, and they know all the history around it. That doesn't make them urban. That makes them, you know, whatever iwi they are, naitaiki, tamaki, or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, the, the difference is, is like, uh, how, how really you group yourself. So if you're a rural Māori, you know your iwi, your hapu, your whānau, your area. If you're urban Māori, you probably, and this isn't universal, but you, and you don't know where you're originally from, you may actually kind of coalesce with other Māori that don't know. Um, so there are in Auckland urban Māori authorities, 
Um, and these are basically groups of Māori that uh, don't have access to their original rohe or the original lands and have kind of coalesced around each other and built communities within um, these urban centres. And that was mainly because until about the 1940s, 50s, um, the divide was Māori lived in rural areas and Pākehā lived in the cities. Um, and then as the kind of the years rolled on after World War Two, Māori started moving to the cities um, and the cities became kind of very big and multicultural. Um, and a lot of the Māori that were left in the rural areas were kind of your, gra- like, my, say, for example, my parents' parents and grandparents. And uh, sometimes they never moved back. And so eventually the kind of the old homesteads and stuff that were out in rural areas would kind of fall into disrepair. Um, you may kind of lose the title deeds, uh, eventually kind of marae and these kinds of new iwi organisations would assemble and they'd kind of start to coalesce and collectivise the land. And um, so you, you, it's almost like you'd miss out, but you'd also forget and then not be able to kind of claim your place. Um, so that's the distinction. It's not it's not about where you live. It's more about like where you feel, like where you feel your kind of sense of being Māori is. And if you're urban Māori, you're just as Māori as everybody else. Um, I want to make that distinction. <laughs> I'm not better because I know my iwi. Um, it's just that urban Māori don't know what it is and may have may not have the capacity to ever know where that is. But they still are Māori and they still want to practice tikanga and they still want to be Māori obviously and so they've kind of created their own if anything it's more, very natural they've created a hapu based not on um whakapapa but more on kind of shared experience is how I would how I would describe it yeah so that's going to be a bit of a thing as we go forward as well um sort of talking about it. what we'll find is that uh, obviously marae are generally quite rural they tend to be out in the you know in the, out, in the, in the sticks in the sticks um and when urban marae start showing up yeah. that is actually a reasonably big thing it doesn't sound that big it's seeing it sounds quite natural you know maori come into the cities and so they want to put yeah. marae but as we'll find as the story goes on that's actually a pretty big kind of cultural shift i guess in well sense. yeah and also uh in auckland i just want to give a shout out to one of the like kind of the oldest and probably biggest urban marae which is a marae called hawani waititi um, out in West Auckland. And that marae was founded by um, urban Māori that wanted a, you know, a place in Auckland to kind of um, culturally express themselves. And these places have kind of become institutions in and of themselves um, and actually have produced some pretty, some, like sometimes the apex of, of Māori cultural expression. Um, one group, Ngātu Manako, which is the kapahaka group that won last uh, last year's Te Matatini, um, they actually all come from Hawani Waititi and practice a Hawani Waititi marae. So it's just kind of, just wanting to kind of put it out there that just because it's an urban marae doesn't mean it's less mm. Māori cultural specific. If anything, sometimes they're a bit more Māori cultural centric than right. rural marae. It <laughs> can yeah, be yeah. sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as well as that, I will add as well, um, if any of the stuff that James talked about in terms of the stuff about like uh, iwi hapu whanau uh, whakapapa or rohe we covered all of that back in the social structure episode so you can go back to those the one that I actually listened to which is why I didn't elaborate because <laughs> I knew we had already covered it he knew we covered that <laughs> yeah so yeah no so if you are c- confused by any of those uh, go to the website you can find those um, as well uh, all those terms and stuff and that sort of thing if, if any of that is confusing 
This is where we will leave it for this episode, with the tantalising prospect of discussing the era of Māori show bands. We will be back next time to discuss that and other topics like World War II songs and kapahaka. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa is spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.